Good evening, good evening, good evening. How is everyone tonight? It's good to see you. Hope you had a great day. Are you all right? Good? Yes, no, maybe so? Smiling at all? All right. There's some relief in that. Romans chapter 5. We'll try to get through chapter 5 and 6 tonight. That's the goal anyway. It's good to have goals, is it not? So we stopped at verse 12. We're going to start at verse 13. We read to the end of the chapter. We'll come back. We'll talk about it. And as always, the chapters are connected, and so we'll bleed right into chapter 6 from the material here. Verse number 13 says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but his sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in, in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification." For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in through or in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. For the law, or the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whew. This section is a contrast of Christ and Adam, some comparison between the two. These are the ones in question, Adam on the one hand, Christ on the other. Adam is said to be a type of Christ, and sin is exposed and will continue to be so, and it has been really the discussion of the book, for it is the problem that humanity has, sin. Remember Jew-Gentile as we continue our discussion here through the book. Back to verse 13, which is hard to read 13 without reading 12, so we'll at least go back that far. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that's really what we're talking about, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. One of the margin readings says, in whom all have sinned, with reference to Adam in verse 12. And so all men are in Adam, and therefore all will suffer the consequence of that action, though they don't inherit his sin. Verse 13, for the law, a similar thing can be seen in Hebrews 7 with reference to Abraham and the Levitical priesthood and Melchizedek and the Christ on the other side of the ledger. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Sin was in the world. We could see that from Romans chapter 1. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. Chapter 3, verse 20 said something similar. 
because by the works of the law no flesh shall we be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Chapter 4 and verse 15 says, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made nullified. Nope. 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Um, God has not, never overlooked sin. That should not be thought of as God taking or turning a blind eye to sin. Sin did reign. Uh, the law here with reference to the law of Moses, uh, there was no law codified, no law written, but sin is reigning. Uh, as early as Genesis 4, Adam, I mean, uh, Adam sins Genesis 3, Cain sins Genesis 4, the whole world sins Genesis 6. Verse 15, uh, nevertheless, death reigned from, until, from Adam until Moses. Death reigns. Even those who had not sinned after the likeness or similitude of Adam or of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Death reigns from Adam till Moses over all. Uh, no one can sin like Adam because there can only be a first sin one time. So no one can sin in the likeness of Adam. He is the first one to commit the sin. You can only do that one time. So no one else can replicate that. But sin does reign. Death reigns now that it's in the world, and it got there by one offense. In this way, verse 15, by way of comparison and contrast, the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, Adam opening the door, sin entering into the world, the many being affected by that sin, much more then did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. He will say this repeatedly, that where sin reigns, grace abounds. There's going to be more grace than the problem of sin. God's grace is sufficient to overcome the problem that man has with sin. And so, despite sin's reign, grace is going to abound, and he will repeat that. So much so that it will be misunderstood when we get to chapter 6. Jesus Christ and God's free gift, we just read about it back in chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, God's great gift in the giving of the Christ is because of transgression, because of sin, and because of this death that's reigning. That one man, that one gift was sufficient. The gift, verse 16, is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. That sin and death came in. It took one sin to get it here. There are many transgressions, though, and God gives Jesus. That, that gift is not based on one. It's based on many transgressions. Five, six, seven, and eight. We were helpless and without strength as a result, and God's grace came in the person of Jesus Christ. And that results in justification. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, 
death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Adam's one act of transgression brought sin, death reigned. That one act was sufficient to create a problem for humanity we could not solve. God's response to that is again captured in the phrase, much more. Much more did God's grace abound to solve the problem. The gift of the righteousness, those who accept, obey the gospel, will reign in life much more that side than this side. The one act of sin brings death. The gift of God brings life. As death reigned, the grace of God will superabound over that to create this dynamic where men can live and not live under this threat of death and sin anymore. That's one act of God's grace. It's going to abound. Verse 18 continues, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification to all men. These statements shouldn't be viewed as they are making the people either or. Adam's action is going to bring sin and death into the world. It's not going to make men sinners. Christ's action is going to bring righteousness and justification to the world, but the act alone won't make every man righteous. Every man will be exposed to the issue of death and sin, and every man will be exposed to the goodness of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. But you still have to either live a life of sin or you have to obey the gospel in order to become the sinner and become the righteous and thus justified. The acts alone brings access to each, but it doesn't make you one even though it reads as if that's what's happening. So verse number 18 or 19 says just that, for through, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Well, that's not intended to be a statement that re replaces everything else relative to free will is how you become a sinner. You don't inherit sin and you don't inherit righteousness. Adam's one action brought sin and death. Christ's one action brings righteousness and justification. But you have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to have that righteousness, and at some point you have to live a life of sin to be called a sinner. Yes, no, maybe so. Bless your heart. <laughs> Jesus is the second Adam, and so verse 20, 21, uh, what, 19, 20, 21, this, I, that, that verse 19, this, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in, and so we've been talking pre-law then, 
the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The law came in, Paul says, that the transgression would increase. Why would the transgression increase? Uh, several reasons for that. Among them would be the law brings the knowledge of sin. That one could live without the knowledge of that, and the law would inform you of your sin. Back in chapter 3 and verse number 20, he says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He will say similar things in chapter 7. In chapter 7 and verse number 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting, coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And so sin is going to increase for all of these reasons. But even with that in mind, verse number 20 ends by saying, where sin increased, the grace of God abounded, grace abounded all the more, superabounded, overwhelmingly triumphed over the sin. Verse 21 says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which really encapsulates everything that's been said up to this point. Sin is reigning and has been reigning. And the law came in, and so you have the Gentiles under sin, you have the Jews under sin. The law has further exposed them, and the transgressions have increased, and the grace of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound through Jesus Christ our Lord. This will take us all the way back to Romans 1, 16 and 17 and the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone. Chapter 3, verse 9, are we better than they? No. 23, all have sinned, come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. 5, 6 through 8, while we were yet helpless and without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. It's this that brings us into chapter 6. The subject of sin is the issue at hand, and it has been the issue. And God's grace has overcome in the person of Jesus Christ, sin and death, grace and law, righteousness and unrighteousness, life and death, Christ and us. When we get to chapter 6, Paul talks about the fact that in that sin and under that dynamic, 
a person is dead in that state, in their sins, transgressions and sins, he would say in another place. But because of 21, where Christ's grace, God's grace through Christ, they have now been freed from sin. And so, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 opens with that idea. What shall we say then? The question is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Verse number 2 says, may it never be so. How shall we who are dead to sin live in it any longer? It seems that the Jews coming from the law had a misunderstanding about grace. And maybe in their minds, they're thinking the apostle Paul is awful soft on sin, that he keeps talking about the grace of God, that he keeps seemingly to suggest that the law and obedience is a non-factor, although that's not at all what he's saying, but it seems to be their misunderstanding. Every time the words grace are used and God's grace is talked about, there seems to be this misunderstanding. Look back in chapter 3, verse number 5. Remember they ask in verse 1 of chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew? And Paul said, chiefly everywhere. I mean, what's, you had every, every advantage. That's 2, 3, 4. And then they say in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how would God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Verse number 8 says, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Paul is saying that there are people saying of him that Paul is preaching you should do evil so you can get God's grace. Apparently, in their hearing of the grace of God, that's what it sounds like. Every time sin occurs, what does Paul say? Grace abounded. And so, they seemingly have linked the two together. So, what you're telling me is, I did all this evil, yes, and God gave all this goodness, yes. So, so, they're saying Paul is now preaching, and he says it's slanderous. It's slanderous to take what he's saying and have him say, let's do evil that good may come. Paul says we're being slandered with that sort of thing. So that's not at all what he is saying. In chapter 5, Paul talked about God's grace beginning in verse 6 down to verse number 11, and he says again similar things that when we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for whom? The ungodly. Okay, so here are people being impious toward God, and he says that's when Christ died. 
So when you were sinners, verse number seven, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would even dare die. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then much more then, again in verse number 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, verse number 20 of chapter 5 and 21, the law came in so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Their question, verse number one of chapter six, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is writing to Christians. He's talking sometimes about when people were not Christians and their relationship to God, Gentile Jew. But he's talking to those who have obeyed the gospel. And so his response to that is in verse number two. How is that even possible? How is it even a thought that you could get sin to get grace when verse number two says, may it never be, how shall we who died to sin live in it? Later in this chapter, he's going to talk about righteousness and sin, and he's going to talk about being dead to one and alive to the other, and alive to one and dead to the other. And here he says, with reference to sin, you've already died to it. You've already, in the obedience of the gospel, died to sin. How could you possibly live in it? Dead men don't live. Isn't that the definition of death? Well, you're dead, to use the language in Colossians, and your life is hid in Christ. You've died to sin so you can live to God. But how did you get to that point? The grace of God is what uh, allowed you to do that and your faith in God. But now that it's done, you don't go back to sin. It would be a grave misunderstanding to take the grace of God and uh, use it as license to sin. That would be a, 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 a huge mistake. Paul, in fact, says, may it never be. That's what's in uh, the NASB. King James says, God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? He explains in verses 3, 4, and 5 how they died to sin. When did this all occur? Verse number 3 opens with a question, or do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Verse 4 opens with the words, therefore. Therefore, we have been buried. What do we do with the dead? We bury him. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. Baptism is not a work of the law. 
and baptism is not a human work of merit. Baptism is the work of God, since God is the one who said, be baptized. It's his work. It's a matter of faith then. It's a matter of grace. It's a matter of faith. And that's how justification occurs. And you've already done that. You died to sin when you came to know Jesus. When you obeyed the gospel, you died to sin. You buried with him in baptism. Through uh, you buried with him into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's in response to verse two. How could you walk in sin in, if you're walking in righteousness? The new life begins after the death has already occurred. You die, you're buried, you rise. This person then doesn't go seek sin to live in it. You came from that. This person over here wouldn't say, well, let me go sin so I can get more grace. You've already gotten the grace. You've already gotten the justification. You've already gotten the salvation. And you died to sin. Then you were buried with Christ. Now you're walking in newness of life. The book is about justification. We might add other words like reconciliation and sanctification. Christ died. He was the one back in verse chapter 5, verse number 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of one, the many were made righteous. Well, that's where they are now. They were baptized into Christ. They died. They rose. They live in newness of life. Baptism is actually a passive thing. You submit to baptism. Belief is the work. Sometimes people say, well, baptism is a work. You'd be doing something to earn your salvation. Absolutely. Actually, you submit to baptism. You allow yourself to be baptized. The work is belief. The work is faith that leads you to allow yourself to submit to baptism. I said this at the end of sermon sometimes, and I really have to ask the, the people who are God's people. I'm actually trying to, I'm preaching a sermon when I say this to those who are not Christians. I get to the end of the sermon, and I say this sentence, and every time I say it, I preface it with this request for God's people to listen very carefully. People, that was the preface. I, I don't know if you got that. People are not going to be lost because they didn't get baptized. The reason they're going to be lost is because they didn't have the faith to be baptized. Without faith, it's impossible. The baptism is what happens after you trust God and you then do what he has said. Your lack of trust will stop you from submitting to baptism. When you refuse to submit to baptism, you're going to be lost. 
But why are you going to be lost? Because you didn't have faith. It is your lack of faith that's going to stop you from doing what God said. And it really wouldn't matter what God said. If he told you to build an ark and you didn't believe him and build the ark, you're going to be lost. If he told you to march around the city and you didn't believe him and then march around the city, you're going to be lost. If you had leprosy and he told you to dip in the Jordan seven times and you refuse to trust him to dip in the Jordan seven times, you're going to keep your leprosy and die. If he told you to put the blood over the house, the door, mantle, and lentils, and on the side, and get the leaven out, it is your refusal. And then he said to you, when I see the blood, why isn't he going to see the blood over your house? Because you refused to trust him to put the blood in the place where he said put the blood. And since he doesn't see the blood, but why doesn't he see the blood? Because you didn't trust him. This is what's going to fail you. It's what's going to fail the Jews. They refuse Christ. And salvation is in Christ. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God has placed salvation in him. Your refusal to trust God and to do what he said is what's going to, con that's how it's going to work. It, it's a passive thing predicated upon your trust. Having done it, though, you don't walk back around the baptistry and then say, well, now I'm going to live as if I didn't come from over here to over here, and I'm going to live and go sin more to get more grace. That's not how it works at all. God forbid that a person would think that. That's Paul's point. Verse number six I will pause for questions, though. As I said, a mouthful. I said that last week, too, and then I, didn't, I gave you two minutes. Yes, sir. He says exactly that in chapter 4. It was not mingled with faith. It was, they were, in fact, he calls them unbelievers. And chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse number 12, warns, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And if you read Hebrews chapter 4, he will spell out, Why didn't they get the rest? They didn't believe. It wasn't mingled with faith. And that's really the point. Uh, here, there, and, and, and everywhere. That is the point. Verse number six, knowing this, knowing this. Now, let me pause here because remember back, why is he talking to brethren like this? Go back to Acts 15 very quickly. Acts chapter 15, you remember the meeting of the elders and the apostles, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, the elders there. And, and the reason they're having this meeting is verse number one. 
some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse number four, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they, received by, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying. So these individuals are in the church as believers. And, and what are they doing inside of the church as believers? They're teaching this, verse number five. It's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. That's happening in the church. And they are hearing these words from Paul's preaching, and they're disagreeing. And so Paul is writing these things, trying to help not only them, but the Gentiles who are under the effect and the influence of them, as well as the Jewish brethren who are being uh, so persecuted and trying to be pulled back to the law while defending the gospel inside of the body. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, he says there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Those people are inside of the body. These Judaizers, these Pharisees who believe are inside of the church. And those are the ones leading these thoughts and disagreeing with Paul. Verse number six, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The old man is put to death. We are like Christ. He was buried, he died, he was buried, so too we with him. The old man, go back to chapter 1 in verse number 9. Nope, before you do that, go to John chapter 4. That's the last but. That's the last one. Don't go anywhere else. John chapter 4. Listen to what Jesus says to the woman uh, there in, um, at the well in verse 22. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, what will constitute a true worshiper? He says they will worship the Father in spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's their spirit. They will worship in spirit. He says, and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. How have the Jews been worshiping? not in spirit. Go to chapter 1. This is Romans 1 and verse number 9. Paul says, for God whom I serve in my spirit, 
in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. The mind, the spirit of, of faith, of trust in God versus, that is then, the inward approach to spiritual things and then outward as opposed to outward in the flesh, law-keeping, my works, my goodness, and then inward. I am going to make myself keep the law. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to work. This is an outward, fleshly approach versus a spirit-led, human spirit-led approach that says, I submit to God. I acknowledge my sins, my shortcomings, my failings. I bend my will. I bend my spirit. I give him my heart, my mind. And whatever he says, I trust him. This is two different approaches to God. Paul says, the old self, this way of thinking, this way of living, this body of sin, which is what it would lead one to, he says, that's died. That's been crucified. In order that the body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. When comes the death? It is a death of self. It is a death of this outward efforts. It's a death of this work-minded approach to God. All things physical led by my goodness, my law-keeping, that which is going to, as he will say later or earlier, they boasted in the law. Verse number uh, 8, he says, now, or verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. He's, he's in, well, he's not introduced it. He's talked about sin really from chapter 1, but he's crystallizing more and more the issue of sin and how it puts you into bondage. How do you get there? He's going to say the law is going to make you aware of it, and once aware, you are now in it. How do you get out? How does one get out of sin? Now that the law has said you're a sinner, now you've committed the sin, the law says you're a sinner, how do you get out of there? Their approach has been to try harder. I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to do the things. I'm going to make it all right by my actions, my effort. The problem is you can't get out from there. That mindset, that approach, once in, you cannot get out. There's only one way out of sin, and that's God's grace. Well, how do you, when you are accepting God's grace, it is an admission that you can't do it. To accept his grace is to admit, I can't fix the problem. To accept his grace would be to humble myself. To accept his grace would be to bend my will. Not my will, your will be done. This would be a spirit approach, the right kind of heart, the right kind of spirit, the mind of submission, the mind of you and not me, the mind of Christ. Nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Let this mind be in you. That's going to be the emphasis. This is a bending of the—that's how we die, we bury, we rise, a new creation. Peter will say, it's not 
the washing of the body. It's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It is an appeal to a good conscience toward God, 1 Peter 3, 18 to 21. Paul is saying the same thing here. He who has died is freed from sin. Sin will make one a slave. Verse number 8, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He's going to take that same language and then move it back to the saints. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives he lives to God. Verse 11, we'll come right back to 10. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead, to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, back to chapter 5 and verse 19. So, as uh, verse number 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Uh, the law came in, so transgression would increase. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, e even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, by this one act of Christ, the Hebrew writer says something similar in Hebrews 10 with regards to Christ's one-time act of sacrifice and what it accomplishes. This is Hebrews 10 and verse number 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting for them for that time onward until his enemies may made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Back to Romans 6. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives he lives to God. Verse number 11, even so, consider yourself, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Go back to verse 1 and look at the question in light of that. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin, live any longer therein. The, the act of salvation is a one-time act. When we sin again, we don't go get baptized again. We repent. Back to our challenges of last week, it's hard for anyone to have the concept that this is sufficient once for all, if every one act I do puts me back out. And that's where a lot of people struggle. And if you say the words, once for all, 
you do not eliminate the possibility of apostasy. You don't eliminate that possibility by saying the offering and the sanctification, Hebrews 10 and Romans 6, was once for all. Well, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient one time. A person's salvation one time is sufficient. They are dead to sin. You should not live in sin anymore. You have died to sin. Sin should not reign. Notice verse 12. We have two minutes. <laughs> Therefore is how the verse opens. Therefore, it's this concluding statement of all that's been said. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Who's in charge of that? The act of Christ was one time. Your salvation, one time. But you can't remove the expectation that a person will grow, a person will walk, a person will live, a person will bear fruit. All of that's expected and anticipated. But the mindset has to change relative to that life and that living. You can't let sin reign in your body. You can't keep on living the same life. Now, why would anyone do that? It might be the case that, have you ever tried to change a bad habit? This is really Romans 7, so we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. But there are two ways you can try to go about changing a bad habit. On the one hand, you can really focus on everything outside of you. So let's say that it's Oreo cookies for me, and I want to change the habit of eating Oreos. What is my approach to that? And this really hits at the flesh and the spirit idea. My approach could be, outside of me. I will simply remove the Oreos. And that's fantastic. If it ain't in your house, you can't eat it. Or you can change your mind about why you were eating them in the first place. One of them will lead you to success. The other one will lead you in a spiral because while you can remove them from your house, your car still works. <laughs> and while they don't have feet, they sure will find their way back <laughs> to your house. Let me urge you to read Colossians 2 in this connection, and especially as we get into chapter 7, we're slightly ahead of ourselves, but that is where he is, what he's talking about and leading into, and that really is the emphasis and point when you and I start talking about grace and faith and spirit over here and law and works and flesh over here. It is these two different approaches to God and spiritual things, and one by the time he gets to Romans 7, it has led him into a spiral of downwardness without any control. And if you've ever tried to change something with that mindset, 
you will know exactly what he's talking about because you have likely experienced the exact same thing. Our time is up. <laughs>